I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And you're listening to Cemetery Row. Woohoo! We almost had to pull a Keith Morrison on Lori this morning. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, just to to defend myself, uh, <laughs> somehow our, our wobbly door got locked last night when we went to bed. And I was awoken at 5 a.m. to the door rattling. I'm half asleep. I don't know the door's locked. I get up. And this is your bedroom door. This is my bedroom door. Yeah, we always keep it shut because all the animals will come in there and try to sleep in the bed with us. And I unlock it and open it. And boom, there's Sawyer standing there crying that he had a nightmare. So very sad, very sad. Adam went and laid down with him and he he was fine. But I didn't get back to sleep anytime (laughs) soon. Um, And normally when I'm sleeping late, Adam will come wake me up. Hey, aren't you recording at 10? He thought we were recording at 11. So I wake up at 10.40 when Bonnie's coming in to snuggle because we do snuggle time. And yeah, I was like, no time for snuggles today. And I had a ton of messages from the girls. Where are you? Do I need to come come over there? Yeah. Yes. We were like, we will get your mama on the phone. <laughs> yeah. I was but it like, was nice that Adam could like handle the children without, you know, yeah, coming to bother you. Yeah, he was. He he just as I was getting my glasses and coming out of the bedroom, he was coming in to tell me, "Hey, aren't you recording at 11? Because this is not the first time that I have slept really close to recording time. <laughs> but yeah, it was. I was sitting here telling Hannah because we, me and Hannah, were just chatting away this morning, waiting yeah. on you. And I was like, what if this is a day in, in, you know, a year we're sitting being interviewed by Keith Morrison. Well, we were just sitting there. She's type A. She's always the first one ready to go. Right. <laughs> she's not here to light up a room. Right. Yeah. I was like, look, we cannot have our Virgo leaving us to like gremlins to our. Mm-mm. No. The number of times the fact that I'm a Virgo comes up in conversation <laughs> at work. Uh is is really funny and it's always me it. bringing it up because i'm like i overthink things and i will do way too much work on something that doesn't need require that so i and can't I, believe I, it i do the same thing to mom though when she's like has a whole dissertation i was like mother mother bring it in bring it in <laughs> We are not doing a doctoral thesis here. We can calm down. Yeah. Well, I'm a Virgo from a uh, two Virgo parents. Exactly. So Bless your heart. Like, Jesus. It's Triple like my brother, the Virgo. Yeah. My brother's just like this Gemini often, you know, la la. Right. Then he's. Bless his heart. Three Virgos. Anyway. Oh, yeah. God love him. And, and, and again, the rabbit hole I went down with this story. So, uh, Yeah. Yeah, mine's a lot of fun too. Um, so we, uh, you want to kick us off with our dearly departed Carl Weathers? Yeah, um, I, I am really sad about Carl Weathers. Yeah, (laughs) Um, I am too. He was so iconic. Like, okay, let me just story time with Sheena briefly. Um, I am not a sports person at all. I mean, like, I don't get it i don't see the point to it in two days everyone's going to forget who won or lost or what i don't care um 
And so one day, many, many moons ago, I was at my mama's house and she turns on the TV and she has on this movie and I have no clue what it is, but there is a hot black guy and an angry Russian and they're talking smack back and forth and I get into it and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm here for this hot black guy because he's, he's cool. He's ready to whoop some butt. Yeah, I'm here for it. <laughs> and then, you know, they go to have this boxing match and there's James Brown and it's so exciting. Yeah, we're going to, the Americans are going to beat the Russians. No offense, Ooh. Russian listeners. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we're going to do this. Yeah, okay, this is going to be a great movie. Okay, like I'm, I'm into it. Dolph Lundgren ruining that for all of us. Yeah, then. Is it Dolph Lundgren? Yes. Okay. It is. It's Dolph Lundgren. And all of a sudden, you know, he throws that punch and there goes mm -hmm. Apollo Creed. And then he says his famous line, if he dies, he dies. He and dies. I you lost all the time. <laughs> I lost it. Lost it. Absolutely lost it. And so this was my introduction to the Rocky movies. Like, to me, yes. that's where the movies start. <laughs> and so then, thank God, this was on a Rocky marathon. So I ended up watching the rest you guys of the go through movie. all of it. And then yeah. it came back to the first one and all that. And I was like, I'm invested. So thank you to Carl Weathers for getting me into the Rocky movies because I do love them dearly now. It, it, I love boxing now because of it. Um, but I just, he's, uh, Apollo Creed was such an iconic character. It and totally was. So many great quotes, so many great everything. So I just, I'm bummed about him like i just which was the sitcom that he had the guest appearance in where he's like you got a soup going was that community uh-uh i don't think so it was one of them and then in the mandalorian he was just yeah, i know love him like when i heard he was gonna be a mandalorian i was like okay two of my favorite things star wars and carl weathers here for it so i'm, I'm sad about love that it. um speaking of celebrities i wanted to just uh name drop uh, a little Hell celebrity yeah. encounter I had this week. Um, but I mean, I paid for it. So, you know, I, I, I meant for it to happen. Um, <laughs> I have spoken on this show before about my love for the show that's on Hulu called Living for the Dead. It is a paranormal um, reality show where every paranormal investigator on this show is LGBTQ+. Um, and they go to different locations and they investigate them, but they do it in this way that is so loving and compassionate and they're helping not just the dead folks move on and all that, but they're helping the living people who are there experiencing it as well. And I always felt very drawn to Kim Boggle, who is the team's like, mostly he reads tarot, but he does some mediumship too. And I just always thought he had such beautiful energy about him. And I thought, you know, if ever I can meet him, like, that would just be so cool. Well, he opened up his books this week, and he had some time to do some reading. So I got one, and it was incredible. Um, we spent about 45 minutes together just chatting. Um, he, It was so funny because... and. It, let me just say this. If you're not into psychics, you don't think it's real, fine, that's cool, do that. Yeah. But I have been to several. I find it comforting. It's, you know, 
Yeah, I've been meaning to. He he brought up stuff that there's no way he would have known and that kind of thing. And yeah, there were a few things that I was like, it's not exactly her energy or exactly his energy or whatever. But then like, it'd be like, oh my God, yes, that's them. Like the first thing, because I knew mama would say it. I knew it. The first thing out of his mouth was she's literally saying, why are you here? Like him. Like she's like, I talk to you all the time, Sheena. Why why are we involved in this guy here? Right. Who's a stranger? you brought into this 100% and I, I thought that before we got on the phone I'm like, I wonder if she's gonna even be like why are you bothering him and so she came through my grandmother came through a little um and then my dad at the end but we also just did a lot of talking about like where I am in life and he was like I really like you doing marketing and like your main job and then what I really appreciated was we talked a lot about my work at Elmwood, um, cleaning stones and giving ghost tours and true crime tours and all this. And he's like, you need to have a practice um, to protect yourself. And as you're doing so much work that is either paranormal, straight up paranormal work, or it's adjacent to it enough that you need to be protecting yourself. And he gave me a lot of really good advice on how to protect my energy, how to release and some stuff. And it's so funny me. because we talked about so that nice. like last week. Cause I had seen, um, I follow lady speech on like TikTok and all of the socials, honestly. Um, and she had talked about, you know, with like graves and, you know, all yeah. of that sort of stuff. And I was like, well, Sheena must have like a million guardians. And I was like, wait, I was like, you know, do like, I mean, your time and energy cleaning their resting place, I think is an offering kind of in and of it itself, is. but right. you know, I, you want to make sure that you're being respectful of yeah this is their their place a cardinal just showed up hey oh. um hi <laughs> cardinals i yep, know how my family everyone says cardinals mean that's a love but no me and mama had a very special thing with cardinals like it yeah. was because that's, we had that's a how I know my brother is around is because the we other day had... when i was super stressed out and i just saw, i was like okay yeah we had a parakeet that fell in love with a fake cardinal um, oh. that we nicknamed Tater Red. And yes. it was um, motion censored. So every time uh, the bird would get close to the fake bird, it would sing. And so all day long, Sprite <laughs> would go over there and knock on Tater Red, the fake bird. And so he ran the battery down. I do not know how many times. And y'all, this was a Dollar Tree bird. Oh, man. He loves that thing. So once they sold out, they were out, and I was having to buy, like, $7 ones off of Amazon to keep him happy and keep him having his bird. Oh, my God. So it was, was, so Cardinals really, literally, the Cardinal just swooped down. I love that. That's so cool. Anyway, so, yeah, Ken was wonderful. I was just going to say, Ken was wonderful, and if you want a wonderful reading, he is so funny and caring and just so cool i told him i'm like i want to be best friends he's like i think i'm going to be best friends with your mama and i'm like i can see that yeah Um, but if you go to kimboggle.com you can get a reading with him and please watch living for the dead it is so good like it is i i've watched every paranormal show out there literally because i'm obsessed with them this is the best one i love this team of people i was the one fan of raw with my girlfriend Kristen. right Kristen Stewart, yeah, she introduces every episode. Yeah, she's like okay. the um, main executive producer chick. Yes. Um, but yeah, my future I love, wife. 
Yeah, I loved Roz Hernandez and and her podcast Ghosted for years before this show ever came. So when she was like, hey, I'm doing the show, I'm like, oh, I got to watch. And then I fell in love with the whole cast. The whole cast is just so yeah. lovely. But Ken is just like, no offense to Spencer, but if I ever replace a gay BFF, it will be with Kim Boggle. There you go. Like, here for it. see i've been kind of wanting to do like first of all the pet mediums because even though i know yes. tabby is okay wherever she is i still want to like make sure she's gonna be like god yep. mom you're i'm fine <laughs> but i also know if like to talk to my brother i feel like he would just troll me by sending me like supernatural quotes and i'm like oh my god i would love it hey did y'all see sir god and rowena had a baby together I meant to tell y'all that. No. Oh, oh my did. god. I did. I did. They've been dating for like years now. And and which I know and they Kelly have had names. a heart attack. Six of them. In like one day. Right? I'm like, I was god like Crowley. Like my Babe. you were my mother's favorite character. Can you not take the same route she did to go yes. meet her? Exactly. No, sir. That was my brother's you will meet favorite. her one day. Yeah, mom Crowley was mama's favorite. She loved him. Oh my god. Um anyway. Um also <laughs> Yes, we are. We are going to. We we all need to talk to our loved ones, and in yeah. fact, um, it's like Ken said, you can. I mean, I talk to her all the time. Oh but, yeah. You know, but um, talking about speaking to the dead or with the dead or whatever, um, we've been doing this for three years, <laughs> and we keep forgetting to mention it. I know it came up so. in like my Facebook memories the last time we recorded, and I like. But we have ADHD, so we forgot to forgotten. mention it. Yep. So but it's you our guys third have been anniversary. Putting up with us for three years—it's insane. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um. Don't forget to tell your friends and rate and subscribe and all that good stuff. Because absolutely, we're still growing. Um, yeah. And all that. Um. And before we jump into our hotties of the cemetery. Um, so a bill got introduced last week in Illinois, um, in the, they don't call theirs, they have a different name for their state legislature. Um, but it's right to die legislation, which I think is very, very important. Um, general assembly, that's what Illinois calls theirs. So basically the statute, um, would allow terminally ill adults with a prognosis of six months or less to obtain a prescription of education that they can self-adjust to end their own lives. Um, and I, of course, fully support it. You know, I think it's so important to have that dignity at the end of your life. Yeah. To have, there's so much you can't control, especially when you're given a terminal diagnosis. And I think it's extremely important to be able to make that decision for yourself. I and, agree a hundred percent. To be treated like an adult with, you know, you know, making adult choices and, yep. you know, and they're not, you know, having to be, because I had this very macabre conversation with my mom where I was like, look, if it's a situation where it's a brain death or something like that, I'm like, you do what you got to do, you know, do Pull the plug. you know how I don't want to live like that. And even if it's a Mm-mm. situation where I could stay like, you know, I hate to say it, but Terry Shivo, where yeah. she just, was she alive technically, you know? And I told my mom, my mom's like, I could never like kill you. She said, but yeah. you know, if you got, cause most of the time they get a UTI and they just kind of mm-hmm. let the UTI do it. She's like, she's like i'm not going to starve you to death and i'm not going to like give you morphine she's like but 
if you get sick, I'll let you go. And I'm like, that's mm -hmm. all I want. I don't want to exist in this, like, no. limbo phase. So um, if you're in Illinois, maybe talk to your assembly person about, you know, mm -hmm. moving that forward. And if you're in a state that doesn't have rights as I legislation, maybe look into it. Because I do think, you know, none of us really wants to ever be in that situation. No. Um, but at the same time, I think it's so important to allow people to have that dignity uh, in their final moments. So I think so, too. I really agree with that. I took that death class in college, and that really mm -hmm. opened my eyes to all the different ways that you can die without dying yeah like that and, and and things like that and i was just like my god pull the plug um do not mm -hmm. ever let me be in i that mean state. what terry shiavo was what our senior year or our junior year and it was just ish yeah painful to watch because i'm like yeah don't ever if i'm in that state don't be putting me on tv and shit like what yeah. what the fuck i'm like no absolutely not and and death is so you know, there's a Jason Isbell lyric about no one dies with dignity. And it's when you watch someone die, especially with something like a cancer or something that is so it it your body's doing stuff you don't want it to. It's embarrassing. It's not fun to watch. It's not fun to be a part of. And yeah, take take some control over it. It's your body. Well, I mean, with like dementia, if I'm so yeah. checked out of reality that I don't even know where I am. I know. I don't I don't want that. You know, and like the and, guy and you guys were talking about who I guess has is having like brain cancer or something mm -hmm. who's just mm -hmm. going completely off. You, you know, it's just yeah. it's awful. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things, too. I know some people with dementia are, are kind of happy in their little fog and, you know, right. good for them. but for some people, that's their idea of hell. So yeah, I don't know. Absolutely. It's different for everybody, but I feel like everyone should have that choice. Absolutely. So. Um, anything else now that we've brought you guys down? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. bringing you down and and probably about to bring you down a little more with. Oh that. yeah, mine's not a happy story, and I'm very sorry. <laughs> it's dark. Well, uh, the theme for this week is hotties I because know. you can be hot and be dead. So, and you know, there's that whole thing, especially if you're cremated. Da -da yeah, there you go. <laughs> um die young leave a good looking corpse and all that Absolutely. which don't please don't die young okay no, Just no don't. please don't live um, until you're like old 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 like 110 okay absolutely that's my goal that's my yeah. goal so long as long as, as you're like healthy and you know can can take care you know be independent people out absolutely yeah. i want to be old enough to be and i want to be i may not you know be able to physically kick someone's butt but i want to be able to mentally and emotionally scar them with my words i want to be like my, my grandma zuline she was sharp as yes. a tack all the way to absolutely the end. absolutely yep. um so yeah we are going to talk about hot people who just happen to be dead um or dead people who just happen to be hot i don't know luhu <laughs> i think you are kicking us off Yes, I am kicking us off because not only is my man's really, really ruggedly attractive, uh, but he also allows me to return to my hyperfixation graveyard, final <laughs> rest. I don't know what you would call it. Mount Everest. Oh, no. Y'all, the rabbit hole I went Here down, for the it. obsession I have, and it all stems from this movie I watched in 2015, and I am obsessed 
with Everest. Um, Here for it. Okay, so I first mentioned his name back in episode 39, our first Happy Times grab bag. <laughs> we waited 39 epi- episodes to do a Happy Times grab bag. Yes, we had all these. I was looking because wow. I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, I know I, I covered the guy he died with. So obviously I had to have mentioned him. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I found the script. I'm like, oh, I just mentioned him in passing. I didn't know how hot this guy was and how, you know, a little bit about him. So I'm like, I've got to, got to, got to do that. Um, So rather than, you know, sharing the stories about the, about some of the 300 dead people on the map. <laughs> I will never get over that. Um, I'm focusing on one specific individual, Andrew Irvin, who was just 22 years old when he disappeared attempting to summit the mountain in June of 1924. Excuse me. Sorry. So I don't know a lot about his, like, personal life. Um, He was born... April 8th, 1902, in Birkenhead, Cheshire, England, to William Ferguson Irvin and Lillian Davies Coley. He was one of six children. He attended Shrewsbury School, which looks to be like the equivalent of an American private high school. Mm. And that's where he met his good childhood friend, and we forgot to talk about this, Hannah, Dick Summers. <laughs> oh shit we didn't we'll we'll talk about that at the end of the episode yeah uh who gave andrew the nickname sandy for his gorgeous head of sandy blonde hair Ooh, the hair became uh, the pair the hair <laughs> <laughs> the pair became close friends and sandy who that's how i will probably most likely refer to him here on out would often summer with dick and his family in north wales um, because Dick came from an extremely wealthy family. His dad was iron and steel magnet, uh, Henry Summers. A- and Dick would even go on to marry Sandy's sister, Evelyn. So oh, okay. Like, super close. Yeah. This 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 relationship is gonna come into play in a little bit. Oh my. Uh while at Shrewsbury, it became evident that Sandy had a talent for engineering, which led him to Merton Co- Merton College, uh constituent college of the university of oxford he had been a star member of shrewsbury's rowing team so it was only natural that he would join the oxford rowing crew and he also joined the school's mountaineering club which was kind of like his first taste of uh you know mountaining yeah whatever you call it scandal would soon disrupt his life as he began a not so discreet affair with a formis former God, my brain is just not working today. You just woke up, Blue Who. <laughs> no. <laughs> With a former chorus girl named Marjorie Agnes Standish Summers, who was, Ooh. can anyone guess, the stepmother to Sandy's best friend, Dick Summers? No. Oh my God. He is dating his best friend's stepmother. He's boinking her. I don't know if I'd call it dating, but they're boinking. They're oh my god! Oh my god! Ew. This is or, definitely a a porno. Well, or just, okay. or get it, Sandy? I don't know. 
Marjorie was beautiful, and she was only 19 when she married Henry Summers, who was 52. So she was a lot closer to Sandy's age. Yeah. Uh, So she married her husband in 1917, and it wasn't long after that she's like, ooh. I don't want to be yeah, man. The rest of my I gotta life. do what? Although fifty six is not old, or fifty two, or 52. whatever. No, but, but I mean, but when it, you're nineteen, you're not attracted to a fifty year old man. And a nineteen seventeen fifty six is probably a lot harder than a twenty twenty four. He probably no matter, looks eighty six. No matter how much money you have. Yeah. Um. Apparently, she was quite taken with the fit, attractive young Sandy, and she would drive him to the theater in her husband's Rolls Royce. And they would go on intimate picnics together. Oh, so they were they were doing it in the park. I'm sure they were. That uh, makes them... eating out take a whole new level. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Hannah. Da-da. Uh, Marjorie even tagged along when Sandy joined Merton College's 1923 Arctic expedition to Spitsbergen, an island in Norway. Sandy could often be seen visiting her first-class cabin at night on the boat on their way to this island how so, good is the dick that you're willing to go on an arctic expedition i, I, see, know. I don't think she like <laughs> physically went on the expedition i think she just kind of like went and and like probably like stayed on the ship or something i don't think she mm. actually physically went okay because i'm like look i've never Never. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I think she was just kind of on the, the ship that was taking them there and she joined him based on what limited things I could find about it. So even though he was an inexperienced high altitude climber, Sandy's strength and prowess impressed Noel Odell, who was the expedition leader. Even better, his engineering skills made him an asset because he could tinker and fix all kinds of shit. Nice. He was so impressed by Sandy's performance during that trip that he recommended him for the 1924 British Mount Everest expedition, which would be the country's third attempt to reach the summit. Oh. Not long after returning from Norway, Henry Summers learned of the affair between Sandy and Marjorie and began to divorce proceedings. Oh, no. That'll do it. Uh, So. So kind of the opportunity to clear his head and kind of get away from all that drama was was probably, I mean, obviously it wasn't the reason he agreed to go because, I mean, it's an opportunity yeah. of a lifetime. But it definitely helped uh, mm-hmm. for him to, to get to go. Um, so his journey to Everest began on February 29th, 1924. He was joined by three other members of the expedition, including famous mountaineer George Mallory, who uh, has gone down in history for his quote, why do you want to climb Everest? Because it's there. <laughs> Men. Yeah. It's kind of like me and Hannah were talking before you woke up about how <laughs> middle school boys like to jump up and hit the doorways. Um, yeah. And I'm like, that's that's the same thing. Because it's there. I right. do that shit. I still do that shit in our house. <laughs> because it's there. Yeah, because it's right. there. Look at me, I so love your, it. your mama can, can jump. Uh, <laughs> so, by all accounts, Mallory really liked him, although he found his conversation to be lacking. So, I'm like, was, was Sandy a himbo? 
Was he a little bit of a himbo? I think so. I think so. In a letter to his wife, Mallory wrote that Sandy could be, quote, relied on for anything but reliable conversation. Oh, Oh, bless him. Maybe he was just an introvert. I don't know. He was so good looking, man. Oh, or he was that dumb. Or, or, yeah, but I mean, Bless he, his heart. he was, he went to a university of Oxford and was studying. Right. He had to have something. Yeah. Yeah. May, may, maybe, you know, maybe he was just like a little socially awkward, socially awkward. Yeah. Right. Know, just, yeah. yeah. He was, and he was a baby. He was 22. True. Oh, no 22 year old is going to carry on an no. incredibly meaningful conversation. Yeah. So Mallory was determined to reach summit of Everest and had originally turned his nose up at the idea of using supplemental oxygen because he thought it was like, ah, that's poor sportsmanship. We got to be able to do it on our own. Goodness. Uh, However, by this third attempt, he was like, "Eh, maybe, maybe we should. Your lungs weren't built for that there, bud. No, no. So this is where Sandy's engineering prowess would come in handy. He was able to make improvements to the oxygen sets, including making them more lightweight and functional. Uh, and this was a pretty significant skill in 1924 because those tanks were notoriously unreliable. And in fact, nearly 40 tanks were found to have leaks in them that same oh, year. Oh, wow. Jesus. That's scary. You know, and your local Sherpas were really skeptical and they called them English air. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That's cute. <laughs> the expedition began their quest up the north face of the mountain on the tibetan side okay so here's because i went down a rabbit hole because the north side of a mountain is the most dangerous side of the mountain that's why the company the north face is called okay i was about to ask yes i googled it as i was as i was researching i'm like well does that mean and yes that is how they got their name Hmm. uh or or one of the reasons there's a couple of right website lists but so you like there's two sides there's the north side and the south side the north side is in Tibet and the south side is in Nepal. And when people first were like, ooh, we want to climb this mountain, both so- countries were closed to outsiders. Right. And eventually Tibet's like, okay, we'll let you come in and you can, you know, explore the mountain. We're going to let you do that. But Nepal was like, fuck no, we're not letting any outsiders in. And so that is why all of the early attempts to summit Everest were done on the north side the most dangerous side of the mountain and attempts. um, And it wasn't until 1950 when (laughs) a little country called China took over Tibet that the North side of the mountain was closed to outsiders. And then Nepal is like, okay, we'll open up the South side. And then not going to lie. I totally respect Nepal for being like, no, no, (laughs) I'm not letting you white assholes come in here. Yeah, but but so that is why I feel like it took so long for someone to reach to. I mean, they just didn't have the access. Well, well, well. That's why it took so long for someone to successfully reach the summit and return, because so Nepal, you know, China closed in 1950. Nepal started letting people come, and it was 1953 when uh, Edmund Hillary reached the right. summit and came back. So it only took three years on the south side um and i'm sure i have this written in my notes later but fuck it i'll repeat myself it wasn't until 1960 that someone successfully reached the summit from the north face of the mountain and that was obviously a chinese team 
So, right, you know, there's that I think plays a role in how hard this this side of the mountain is. Right. <clears throat> the first, so so they they get there and they make two attempts to reach the summit, and they're like, okay, we've got one more chance for the the season ends. And Mallory was like, I got to do it. He was 37 years old and he knew this was kind of his last chance. So he just, it was decided, okay, Mallory's going to go. And he took one person with him and everybody thought he was going to take Noel Odell because he was the more experienced climber. But Mallory was like, no, I'm taking Sandy, which makes sense because he had such good expertise with those oxygen tanks and 30,000 feet is really high and that's where they were going to need it because because everest like is right around 29 30,000 feet mm-hmm. so they began their attempt on june 6th they borrowed a camera from a fellow expedition member howard Somerville, uh because apparently mallory was very forgetful and didn't bring one it was like it was a kodak pocket camera and that thing ooh man that camera <laughs> is controversial Oh, uh, my. Yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. So they made their final camp at 26,800 feet before eating a can of tin sardines and heading out on June 8th. That afternoon, they were spotted by Odell, who was kind of following along behind him to kind of offer support if something happened. He spotted two distant figures approaching what is called the second step, a dangerous 100 foot rock wall that is located at 28,230 feet he said they appeared to be moving strong they were a little lower than he assumed they would be but he's like they're looking good they're gonna hit the summit and that was the last time anybody saw Mallory or Irvin Uh oh wow Odell eventually made it to the camp and he could see that there were like oxygen tank parts and it looked like you know things were scattered around that they had left um And so he went back to his camp and he returned a few days later when neither uh, Sandy or George Mallory had returned and there was no trace. Nobody had been back to the camp. They had been lost to the mountain. Mm. Yeti got him. Something got him. In 1933, so about 10 years later, another expedition discovered an ice axe at 27,760 feet that Ma- I have no idea what just happened. Okay, carry on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, it, the 1933 expedition found an ice axe that had the serial number of an axe that had been a part of a group that had been supplied to the 1924 expedition. And it is believed the axe belonged to Irvin as there were three notches etched into the handle that uh was very similar to the notches sandy would put in his equipment like i guess to instead of putting his name in magic marker he would just etch it that makes sense but then in one in one of the sources i read uh when harris who was the man who discovered the axe said it was a sherpa who added the marks to ensure that it wasn't going to get mixed up with other axes because it's like they found it and they're like don't you lose that (laughs) yeah so either way, it belonged to one of the men because nobody else had made it that far up the mountain before. So it had to be one of them because they're the only two men that were lost to right. the that it could have been. Um. Okay. So again, 1950, China closes the mountain. Then in 1953, 
uh, Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa Tenzing Norgay became the first people to successfully summit and return from the South Side. And then again, 1960 was the first time a Chinese team successfully summited the north side of the mountain. So, woohoo, big deal. In 1975, Wang Hongbao, a member of a Chinese expedition to the north side, reported discovering the body of a, quote, English dead at about 26,600 feet. He described the man as laying on his side with a large wound in his cheek. Ooh. He judged that the body had been there for many years as the clothing were old-fashioned, and as he touched them, they kind of disintegrated away. He reported this finding to his tent mate, but unfortunately, no other information could be gathered as Wang was killed in an avalanche on the mountain the very next day. Oh, Jesus. No. That is some cursed yeah. shit. I'm telling you. But since there yeah. were no other Westerners on the mountain since the 30s, it was just assumed that it had to be Mallory or Irvin. 24 years after Wang's initial discovery, a team returned to the area where he had claimed to find the body. And that is where that, well, it's not exactly where, but the only body they were able to find was the body of George Mallory at 26,760 feet. Now, I know I, I shared this in episode 39 or whatever, but his body was found face down. He had a fractured leg, broken arm. He was beat to hell. But... Uh, they were able to identify him because a label in the clothing had his name on it. And there was a fraying old rope around his waist. So it appeared that he had fallen while attached to Irvin. And mm. uh, I'll reassure this. It's believed that he had an ice axe and he was like, as he was slipping, he was trying to grab hold and the ice axe slipped and bashed him in the forehead. Yeah. Oh, he had a, a hole in his forehead. But then again, the the man who initially claimed to have found a body said that the hole was in the cheek. Right. Not, not the forehead. But they could not find any other body at that around that location. Um, and it's it, it really sucks, y'all. Uh, well, and if it still hit him in the cheek, it's, it's not the same. But it's like when you're looking at your phone when you're laying down and it like flops on your head. Mm -hmm. I mean, he could have seen the ice axe coming for him and, like, tried to divert, and it still, you know, True. got him. Yeah. Right. It, yeah, so the team that discovered his body, which was really sad, because apparently there was, like, this big bidding war over pictures, and there Oof. are pictures of his body, and, I mean, he's frozen, so he did not, yeah. uh, you know, decompose. fade away, decompose like uh, most most bodies would, and he's still there, Um but they were hoping that they would find the camera uh, because the contents of the film could confirm whether or not they had reached the summit successfully. Right. Now, I it wouldn't be considered the successful a successful summit because they didn't make it back if they had gotten right. to it. But they, it's still the first people did it happen. Was it them? But nothing, no camera was found with his body. But they also didn't find the picture of his wife and daughter that he carried with him that he was going to put at the top of Everest. Mm. But also when Edmund Hillary reached the top, he found no photo. So it's like eh, that photo could have easily been lost. And if he was as forgetful yeah. as they say he was, maybe he didn't even right. have the photo with him. So mm -hmm. I don't know how much weight stock he put into that. 
so now the hope of discovering the camera and its contents is dependent on the discovery of Irvin's body. And there have been multiple attempts to locate his body, uh, but all have resulted in failure. Mm. However, popular mountaineer Mark Sennett believes he knows what happened. And so now we'll get into this. He published an article in April of 2021. He claimed that he had heard rumors that the Chinese had found Irvin's body and the camera during the 1975 expedition and had buried the remains and taken the camera. Mm. Because the Chinese feared that, like, if this film gets developed and it shows them at the summit, that's going to take away the victory we got by reaching the top. So we don't want that to happen. So after being told by a friend that an official with the Chinese Tibet Mountaineering Association confirmed that, yeah, we found the camera and the body, Sidet made plans to visit China to conduct an interview with a high-ranking official with the association. But that was in early 2020. And we all know what Hmm. happened then. Yeah. 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 A year after the publication of his book, The Third Pole, he received an email from a man named Wayne Wilcox Apparently, Wilcox had some pretty significant information that he had planned on using for a book himself. But after reading the third poll, he's like, Senate, you're the guy for this. And according to Wilcox, his wife, who was a British diplomat to China, had heard from a fellow diplomat that the Chinese had indeed found the body and the camera during the 1975 expedition. The diplomat who did apparently speak to Senate, but asked to remain anonymous confirmed that they interviewed Han Duo in 1984. She was the first Chinese woman to successfully reach the summit of Everest. And in that 1984 interview, she admitted that in 1975, they discovered Irvin's body and the Kodak camera. And they covered his body and took the camera. Hmm. They attempted to develop the film, but apparently it was they were unable to do so. Although Kodak said that because of the temperatures up on that mountain, if the if they you know they might be able to develop it, but that's yeah, you know, Codex Labs. I'm sure it's a little better than whatever China was working with at the time. Yeah. So according to this article, Wilcox arranged an interview between the editor of the Economist and Panduo in 2008, and during this interview, she admitted that they had discovered a body of a European man at about 26,900 feet. She said they covered his body with small rocks to mark his grave, but she did not admit that they found the camera. Hmm. So whether or not this is true is up to speculation. She died in 2014, and Senate has not been able to connect with any other members of the 1975 Chinese expedition to verify the story. So the mystery of whether George and Sandy successfully reached the top of Everest, well, is it's just going to remain just that. At this point, it's nearly 100 years since they disappeared, 25 years since the discovery of Mallory, and it's unlikely at this point that they're going to find Irvin. Whether or not he was buried by the Chinese or fell off a cliff or anything like that, there are so many places he could be. Yeah. And there are so many people that are were never found that went missing on Everest. Um, and in my opinion, they didn't make it. I, I just, yeah. I know everybody's like, oh, they're so excited about the possibility. But I'm like, I just, I feel like 
they fell before they were able to make it to the top. Yeah. That's just me in my inexperienced opinion. I know nothing. The experts know better than I do, but I, it's probably not likely. Yeah. But an obelisk memorial stands to Irvin at Merton College and a more memorial for both Merton at Merton, a memorial window (laughs) for both Irvin and Mallory can be found at Chester Cathedral in Cheshire. It reads, quote, to remember two valiant men of Cheshire, George Lee Mallory and Andrew Coman Irvine, who are among the snows of Mount, who among the snows of Mount Everest adventured their lives even until death. There is also a memorial to both men at Everest Base Camp that reads, in memory of George Lee Mallory and Andrew Irvine, last seen 8th June 1924, and all those who died during the pioneer British Mountain at Mount Everest expeditions. Hmm. Oh, so yes, that is that is the mystery surrounding the disappearance of Sandy Irvin, and I hate that he doesn't get more recognition, like to the lay person. You know, the lay person might know about George Mallory, but they don't know about this young kid that you know had no experience right. climbing at that altitude, but was just you know a really good tinkerer and had that engineering background and everyone seemed to like him and y'all one of these pictures i share of him he has got the whitest smile (laughs) like he was just you know yes he was very good looking especially compared to the men he was going up that mountain with yeah you gotta have the pretty himbo with you i mean it's not Mm -hmm. an ensemble cast without the himbo yeah Yeah. and it just it's it's it sucks that like i could not if you Google like George Mallory Memorial Monument, you you get all of the stuff for him. There is no listing of anything for Andrew Urban. Like his find a grave doesn't have anything. It just has oh hmm. he died on Everest. That's where he's buried. Mm, um, yeah. But I, I struggled to find. It was easy to find like the little obelisk at um um the college that came up pretty quickly, but like nothing like it took me having to to do george mallory to find anything else that had sandy Irvin's name and that sucks you know he was a part of that too and anyway so that's my story Awesome. awesome and uh again i am not usually a fan of blonde gentlemen but again he's just got a very attractive face and so just yeah. I love yeah. it. <laughs> All right. Total hottie. Yeah. Hannah. Speaking of blonde hotties, um, <laughs> who had more than an attractive face, God bless her. Um, this particular story touches on some of my favorite cultural icons. Um, Eric Roberts as an actor, <laughs> a Red Hot Chili Peppers song. Um, just... Ugh, it's delicious. Um, and <laughs> just know that Eric Roberts, for the youngins among us, yes, that is Emma Roberts' papa and Julia Roberts' brother. He plays a sleaze ball better than anyone outside of Ray Liotta. Better than yeah, anyone, hundred percent. That that is like his bread and butter right there. Like yep. the Mister Brightside music video, he <laughs> says not a single word, but just exudes sleaze ball. Yeah. 
And mm-hmm. I love it for him. He's just a fantastic actor, national treasure. We love him. Um, so he played, and I initially thought it was the miniseries. It is not the miniseries. It is the theatrical release of a movie about our this dear, sweet, perfect, precious little baby named Dorothy Stratton. So Dorothy Stratton was actually born Dorothy Ruth Hoog Stratton uh, in Canada, uh, February 28th, 1960. So her birthday is coming up. Um, and she was a Pisces. Therefore, she has a special place in my heart. Um, and she was a Canadian model and actress and was a Playboy playmate. Um, and she was gorgeous. She just had mm-hmm. that classic late 70s, 80s look. She was absolutely stunning. Um, and she also had really good acting chops. She was pretty smart. Um, you know, she was really a triple threat. And so um, one of the books her lover, Paul Bogdanovich, wrote about her was The Killing of the Unicorn. Um, because in a lot of ways, she was a unicorn, being smart, beautiful, talented, just all of the above. So let's talk a little bit about our girl, Dorothy. Um, she was born in Vancouver on February 28th, 1960. Her parents were Simon and Nellie, who had immigrated from the Netherlands. She had a brother named John Arthur and a sister named Louise. Keep Louise in mind. We're going to come back to her. Um in 1977, when she was still in high school, so if you do the math, 17, she was in high school and working at a Dairy Queen. And while she was there, slinging um, dilly bars and ice cream cones. I fucking love Dairy Queen. Don't even get me started. Same, same, uh, same. She met the villain of our story, an absolute shit face, 26-year-old promoter and pimp. Paul Snyder. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, he would later convince her to take nudes um, professionally and set them into Playboy to try to get her to be a playmate. Again, he's a pimp. Um, she did indeed get chosen as a finalist for the 25th anniversary Great Playmate Hunt in 1978. Um, so she moved to Los Angeles, California. Um, Snyder would join her later that year and they married the year after bros. Um, Mm -hmm. she became Playboy's Miss August 1979 and was a bunny at the Playboy Club in Century City, Los Angeles. Um, Hugh Hefner, um, just complicated um he really thought she would have a lot of crossover success as an actress again she was very talented um and she was featured in episodes of buck rogers and fantasy island um she had small roles in films called americathon um a roller <laughs> disco comedy called skate town usa mm-hmm. that sounds great lead- i know that's one of paul bogdanovich's and i'm gonna have to check it out because a roller disco comedy sounds it hits all of my venn diagrams i know um and she was in a lead role in the exploitation film Autumn Born, also released in 1979. Exploitation is basically porn, but acceptable to be viewed in a public setting. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about how that plays into some different stuff. Um, Hefner was told by some staff at Playboy that uh, Dorothy should sever ties with greasy, disgusting Paul. Um in a documentary about Dorothy, Hugh was on screen saying he tried to warn Dorothy about Paul, but you know, you can't you can't really tell people, you know? That's yeah. just mm-hmm. one of the tragedies of like 
you know, that's really a tragedy. Um, however, in March of 1980, she flew to New York City to begin work on her last film project. They all laughed, which would be released in 1981 after her death, which was a rom-com being directed by Paul Bogdanovich. And you're like, wait, do I know that name? You do. Or Peter Bogdanovich. I'm sorry, not Paul. Peter. Paul is her other gross, gross man's name. Um, <laughs> you have heard of Peter Bogdanovich. Um, he passed away only very recently in 2022. Mm-hmm. He was a film critic for Esquire for a very long time. Um, he has won BAFTAs, Grammys, Oscars, and Golden Globes. So he's he's really doing it. Um, so some of the things that he has done was The Last Picture Show, Paper mm-hmm. Moon, St. Jack, Mask in 1985, which is absolutely mm-hmm. love. Um, the Other Side of the Wind with Orson Welles. Um, <laughs> he had roles in The Sopranos. And he won a Grammy for Best Music Film for directing the Tom Petty documentary Running Down a Dream. Oh, wow. In 2007. So he was extremely versatile and he very much was infatuated and very much loved our dearly beloved Dorothy. Um, so they basically met and fell in love and, you know, you can say what you want about like cheating and stuff. She was going through a tough time. She was 20 fucking years old. I ain't judging the girl. I forget Uh, how young she was. I know. Baby. A whole baby. Um, this movie would be her fifth movie in a career that had only begun and was her first substantial role in a big budget picture. Um, she was the unhappily married love interest of John Ritter. Also, rest <laughs> his soul, but love one of my favorite comedian authors. Um, Bogdanovich, who also wrote the screenplay, said in an interview that he had kind of based the story of her character on kind of her own marriage. They had kind of been talking and she'd kind of been yeah. like explaining like, oh, he used to be a pimp and now he's like using me for my money. Tale as old as time. Yeah. Um, and the two, you know, started an affair, which, you know what? Good for you, girl. Um, she had spent the first two and a half months of 1980 completing her Playmate of the Year shoot and making a previous movie, Galaxina, in Southern California. Um, with all her work close to home, Snyder assumed the role of his wife's chauffeur as well as manager and acting coach, which how are you helping anyone oh, act? Uh, I know. You're a pimp from Vancouver. Like, uh, please calm I down. BS. However, his near constant presence, as well as his criticism of and almost daily arguments with Dorothy, caused her so much stress that her coworkers at Playboy and on the set of Galaxina took notice of, you know, you see, and there's nothing more awkward than like sitting there while your friends having to fight with their significant other, and you're just like, oh, wow. This sucks. And you're like, girl, dump him. Right. Like, sweetheart, I will go get the shovel right now. Let's just take care of this. Yeah. As the spring of 1980 approached, Snyder insisted on accompanying his wife to the New York shoot for They All Laughed. But Dorothy was a clever, clever little girl and said, you know what? The set's closed. You you can't be there. It's just just actors and crew and that's it. I'm like, that's a girl. Um, and it gave her, you know, more of a chance to, to, you can't hang out with your side piece if your husband's there all the time. Jesus. True. Stratton convinced him to remain in LA, you know, saying, Hey, they closed the set. Um, and they, um, Dorothy and Peter consummated their affair the day after her arrival in New York. Good for you, girl. Good for you. (laughs) 
In April, she was in California briefly to prepare for her introduction as Playmate of the Year in the publicity tour. Uh, back in the day, this is a much bigger deal uh, than it is now. She actually yeah. was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson after she was named <laughs> Playmate yeah. of the Year. That so. was a big deal back then. Yeah, yeah. It was. And yeah, it's ugh, what a bizarre, bizarre <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. world we were in. Um, they held the luncheon at the Playboy Mansion. She was presented the um, award, or award honor, whatever. <laughs> you know, Hafner noted that Dorothy was from Canada and received $200,000 in cash and gifts in addition to the title, which is good for her. Um, he also acknowledged that her charming combination of beauty, intelligence, and sensitivity had on many of her when he said and she is something rather special they always are but dorothy really is quite unique and i I think everything that you hear about her is that she just was an absolute sweetheart and that she just really you enjoyed being in her presence and honestly like i follow holly madison on tiktok and i absolutely like adore her i think she's just the cutest sweetest little thing yeah she's adorable yeah Stratton thanked uh, the photographer, Mario Casilli, who shot her um, pictorials, um, and then Hafner, um, she, he, who she said has made me probably the happiest girl in the world today. Um, and then, she, again, she was a guest on The Tonight Show. Uh, it was such a wild, strange world the 80s were. Um, did the promo tour in Canada and then arranged at the end so that she could chill out with her family for a few days. However, here comes Paul to be the turd in the punch bowl. And instead of <laughs> getting to ugh, instead of getting to spend some time with her family and chill out and recharge and all of this, he talked her into making appearances at different clubs and nightclubs and establishments and he pocketed all of the money from that. Fuck this guy. Yeah, of course. Not he only does. does he like take up her vacation with her family he also like takes her money of course he was having trouble getting a hold of her of course when he was in la and she was out in new york doing stuff um however in late june just a few weeks after their first wedding anniversary love to see it um he received a letter from dorothy announcing they were now physically and financially separated that's (laughs) my girl he had several responses to this letter he emptied their joint bank account, had a brief affair with an old girlfriend, which she has moved on to better dick. That's not hurting her feelings. Oh, like, oh. And hired a private detective to follow her to prove that she was boinking uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Get a life, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yep. However, as is normally the case, he needed her more than she needed him because he was a foreign national in the U.S. without a green card. Bitch didn't even have a work visa. So he was not allowed to hold a job and having no other source of income other than his wife. Um, he really didn't have any money, but he was paying for this private detective to be in New York yeah. Doing shit. So, in the summer of 1980, he began selling her Playmate of the Year prizes. The most notable example being a Jaguar sports car that had been valued at 26000 in 1980. And let us do the calculations. 
Yeah. As if it's his to sell. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Like what a fight. She had her titties out for that. Not you. So exactly. Yeah. That would be a hundred and four thousand dollar car in today's money. And he basically just sold it so he could continue to spy on her because he's a fucking disgusting human being. Yep. Principal photography for they all laughed wrapped in July. Um, and she went ahead and went back to L.A. Um, after she had a 10-day holiday with Peter in England. I'm like, yes, bitch. Yes. yes. <laughs> Queen. Um, she had rented a Beverly Hills apartment, but she was basically living with Peter Bogdanovich in Bel Air. Again, we love a sneaky queen. As I have said before, I support women's rights, and I also support women's wrongs. And I really don't think she was wrong in this yeah. case. You can have your feelings about cheating, but he was disgusting. Yeah. She needed July- a, a better man. Absolutely. On July 31st of 1980, Paul, now aware that Dorothy was back in L.A. and living with Peter hid among the shadows just outside the director's estate with a borrowed handgun intending to shoot whoever appeared at the entrance of the property. After several hours of act- of inactivity, he grew impatient and left, drove into the hills overlooking the city, and had thoughts of suicide, which, again, I never Do want it. anyone's... Exactly. I never want anyone <laughs> to complete suicide, but, homie, you should have done it then. Yeah, If you were going to do it, that would have been the time to do it and saved everybody a lot of heartache because you fucking sucked. About noon, August 8th, which was a Friday, uh, Dorothy and Paul saw each other for the first time in nearly three months at the home that they formerly shared in West L.A. After having already persuaded Dorothy to pose for Playboy and then marry him, Paul was super confident that he could convince her to take him back bitch please (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly but his hopes of a reconciliation were quickly dashed when dorothy admitted she had fallen in love with peter and wanted to finalize their separation dejected he agreed to meet with dorothy one more time the following week to discuss a monetary settlement she was basically like i'm gonna pay you and you're gonna get the fuck out of my life Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah later that afternoon less than a week before her murder snyder had to return the borrowed gun to its owner he couldn't even buy the gun to kill his wife That is how shitty this man is. Over the next five days, he would, of course, become obsessed with getting another. He tried to get his private detective to buy one for him. Um, He tried to buy one, but he had Canadian citizenship, so he couldn't do that. He tried to get the private detective to do a straw purchase where you purchase it, but hand it off to somebody who's not allowed to purchase it. Thankfully, the private detective was like, no, fuck you. Yeah, Um, exactly. Then he also tried to get the private detective to buy him a machine gun for home protection. Jesus Christ. Again, no one the needs PI, a machine gun. And again, and you couldn't get a gun from like a regular gun shop and you're going to try to get an AK? What is wrong with you? And again, the PI, the only one with any sense in this terrible twosome, is like, no, bitch. No. Yeah. Fuck off. He drove out to San Fernando Valley to... Um, look at a gun he saw in the classifieds remember classifieds um however isn't it terrifying you could buy a gun in the classifieds you could buy anything in the class it was amazing it was so insane uh he went to go find the one from the newspaper he got lost and gave up and went home oh my god it's just a comedy of errors it's just ridiculous 
finally, unfortunately, on August 13th, 1980, he bought a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, which from the sounds of it sounds very awful. Mm-hmm. Don't like the sound of that. Also through the classifieds. God love us. Um, later that evening in a conversation with friends, Paul described how he had purchased the gun that day and finished his story by cryptically declaring that he was going to, quote, take up hunting. Fuck this oh, guy. Oh, God. Paul casually brought up the subject of playmates who had unexpectedly died. He spoke of Claudia Jennings, an actress and former playmate of the year who'd been killed in a car accident the year before. He also made several morbid remarks to his companions related to the problems Playboy had caused at Playboy caused by Jenny's death, including a comment about how editors would pull nude photos of a dead playmate from the next issue if there was time. So again, not only is he wanting to kill her, he's also wanting like her legacy to be right. taken away. Stratton arrived for her meeting with him and their formerly uh, their former together home. In West L.A. at about noon on Thursday, August 14th, she had spent the morning conferring with her business manager, and one of the t- one of the things that they would discuss would be the settlement with her husband for the divorce. Um, the police would find $1,100 in cash among her belongings, which she had brought as a down payment. Her business manager had tried to convince her to like have the lawyers do all this and not meet in person, which, again, is the smart thing to do. But God love her. She said the process would go easier if she dealt with Paul personally, explaining that he was being nice about everything and finally adding, oh, no. I'd like to remain his friend. I'm like, baby. Girl, that's no. impossible sometimes. That is a codependent thing, sweetheart. You don't owe him anything. No. Snyder, who had two roommates this whole time, had left in the morning, so he and Dorothy were alone when they walked in the house. Um, By all appearances, she had spent some time in the living room where her purse was found laying open before she and Snyder went into his bedroom. It's probably just a, you know, let's roll in the hay one last time for old time's sake. Or he could have forced her. We don't know. We really don't know what happened. The movies present different. The way the movies presented, it was very much not consensual. Yeah. Um, which, if she was in love with Peter, she wasn't. I know. Fuck it probably him. wasn't. Yeah. yeah. By eight that evening, both of the return roommates had returned, and they saw her car out front. And noted that his bedroom door was closed. We we're like, okay, they were, you know, whatever. Something's going on there, and they would just watch TV. Roommates, man. <laughs> um, Snyder's PI, however, was concerned because he had not heard from him all day. And about 11 p.m., they, so less than 12 hours, they walked in and discovered the bodies of Dorothy and Paul. Each had been killed by a single blast from Snyder's shotguns, and they were both nude. According to the police timeline and forensic evidence collected at the crime scene, Snyder had shot Stratton that afternoon within an hour of her arrival at the house, and he had killed himself an hour after her death. Sometime after midnight in the early morning of August 15th, the PI telephoned the Playboy Mansion and told Hafner that Dorothy had been murdered. Hafner then called Peter. After collapsing at the news, he had to be sedated. No. Uh, Dorothy's mother was told of her death at her home later that morning by a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Dorothy's body was cremated and her remains were interred at the Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles. The epitaph on her grave marker includes a passage chosen by Peter 
from chapter 33 of the Hemingway novel, A Farewell to Arms. And I'm going to read that right now. It says, if people bring so much courage to this world, the world has to kill them to break them. So, of course, it kills them. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. If you are none of these, you can be sure it will kill you, too. But there will be no special hurry. Oh, man. I know. I was like, ooh, that that hit. That hurts. That, hit. that hurts. <laughs> that hit real fucking hard. Um, And interestingly, three years after her murder... Uh, Ernest Hemingway's granddaughter, Muriel Hemingway, would play her in Star 80 opposite um, our good friend Eric Roberts. So, hmm. very small world. Um, after her murder, Paul Bogdanov- or Peter Bogdanovich released They All Laughed. Um, didn't have a great release, unfortunately, but, you know, as you do. Um, and in 1984, he would write... The Killing of the Unicorn, Dorothy Stratton, 1960 to 1980. Um, The Killing of the Unicorn is by turns a biography of Dorothy, a memoir about their affair, and a scathing feminist attack on Hugh Hefner, which I simply (laughs) here for. Here for. Absolutely. Go, Peter. Um, He basically took down Hugh Hefner, his the philosophy, the hedonistic sexual mores he celebrated in his magazine, and the entire Playboy organization. Um, by far the most controversial part of the book is the director's claim that Hefner had sexually assaulted Dorothy in August of 1978. I wouldn't doubt it. No. To be perfectly no, honest. Yeah. All the stuff that has come out about this piece of human trash. Exactly. It was yeah. Somebody was unfortunately getting raped at that mansion, and I... You know, unfortunately. According to Bogdanovich's allegation, the assault occurred while the two were alone in a secluded area of the Playboy Mansion at the end of Dorothy's first day of posing, of course. Um, Peter chose to to use the word seduced to describe Hefner's behavior in the book. However, he originally used the word raped in the drafts of his manuscript. It was the publisher, after being threatened by a lawsuit, that changed it to seduced. Hmm. Go figure. Among the other allegations Peter made in his book, some of the most significant are that Dorothy had not married Snyder out of love, but rather to use her marriage as an excuse to block the advances of Hefner, who Peter claimed pursued Dorothy as a sexual partner after the assault. That Dorothy loathed nude modeling and dealing with Playboy in general and only tolerated the humiliating work in order to promote her acting career. I will say, if you're posing nude and it's entirely your choice, fucking get after it. Yeah, like, yeah. More, more power to you. Get your titties out. Get your meow meow out. Do, it, do whatever you feel like as long as you're the one in control of it. You're the one yeah. making money off of it. Like, if that's what you want to do, I completely support it. There's a lot, especially with her age... She maybe was not fully consenting to a lot of what was going on. And that Hefner was responsible in part for enabling Snyder's killing rage when he was banned from entering the Playboy Mansion just days before the murder. I'm not going to put that on Hefner because Hefner didn't murder him. And if he was that dangerous, he didn't need to be around any other women either. Right. You know, so I'm going to go ahead and say Hefner kind of wins on that one. I'm sorry. 
Peter's underlying assertion for the last charge is that Snyder was banned because Hefner hated the man. Which I again stopped clock twice a day. Yeah. Um, in his defense, Hefner explained that the purpose of the ban was to encourage Dorothy and Peter Bogdanovich to appear at the mansion as a couple. So, okay, maybe making it more comfortable for Dorothy to be there with her man instead of having her creepy, gross ex hanging around. Nearly every review of the book in the U.S. press was negative because it was 1980. Mm-hmm. While few objected to his attacks on Hefner and Playboy... Uh, many were skeptical of his newfound feminism, pointing out, for example, that he seemed to be oblivious to his own sexist susceptibility to the Madonna horror complex. Imperfect. I'm not, again, I'm not going to, like, give him shit for that, mostly because, like, you don't, a lot of people don't become feminist anti-racist all until something happens that hits them yeah mm-hmm. and we still have these sexist things now in 2024 when we we're supposed to be so much more enlightened right. than 44 years ago and yeah. you know it just i don't know i'm not gonna like get too deep in that and just say well if you're not feminist about all things your feminism no it's he was getting there, okay? Which, in 1980, for a film guy to even think about attacking Playboy, I'm gonna give you t- I'm, g- I'm gonna give it to you. Yeah. Agreed. Again, not saying you're great, I'm just saying maybe, you know, maybe we're, we're nitpicking a little bit. Um, in 1985, when asked again about his relationship with Dorothy after the release of The Killing of the Unicorn, Hugh Hefner did concede to a crucial detail at the heart of Peter's allegation. Namely, Hugh admitted that several weeks after Dorothy arrived in L.A., the two had taken a nude soak in the jacuzzi on the Playboy Mansion grounds, the place where Peter had claimed the sexual assault had occurred. In the same interview, while allowing that they had hugged in the mm-hmm. jacuzzi... Hafner denied having forced himself on Dorothy. Hafner also denied, despite his reputation, that he had ever so much as made a pass at the young Canadian. I oh, call please. bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So, yeah. No, I'm, I'm not buying it. No. Um, so, we've had two films so far based on our poor, beloved Dorothy. Um, first is Death of a Centerfold, the Dorothy Stratton story, which was a made-for-TV movie starring Jamie Lee Cur- Curtis as Dorothy Stratton. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, Bob Fosse would go to direct Star 80, which 1983, with Mariel Hemingway as Dorothy Stratton and Eric Roberts as Paul Snyder. It has the most heartbreaking final scene. You don't see her death, but... You know, he has the gun to her head and he says, tell me you love me. And it's Oh, God. And then it goes to black and you hear a gunshot and it's just, oh, it's heartbreaking. And I was way too young when I saw that movie and was like, oh, fuck. Um, In 1983, film critic Vincent Camby wrote, Dorothy possessed a charming screen presence and might possibly have become a first rate comedian with time and work. In December of 1988, at the age of 49, Peter Bogdanovich married Dorothy's sister Louise, who was 20. Look, look, y'all, I know it sounds gross. 
But I know. Sometimes but... when you go through something like that, yeah, true. that's very yeah. true. Like and you trauma bond, and yeah, right. Yeah. He had paid for her private schooling and modeling classes, and they were married for thirteen years. Uh, they didn't divorce till two thousand and one. Um, see, uh, Brian Adams, along with Jim Valance, wrote the song "The Best Was Yet to Come" as the closing track for "Cuts Like a Knife," um, as a dedication to Dorothy. And he also wrote um, with the Canadian band Prism a track called "Cover Girl," uh, hmm. Bush's song "Dead Meat," which I'd never heard, which is interesting, was written in her memory. And one of my favorites, "Californication." By the Red Hot Chili Peppers makes a reference to her. And if you are unfamiliar with the song, or you're like, wait, where does it come up? Before the bridge, it says firstborn unicorn, hardcore soft porn, which is a reference to Dorothy. Um, God love her. And that is such a good album. Um, so that is our beloved Dorothy Stratton. If you want some just amazing 80s cheese tasticness go visit um or go watch star 80 and the made for tv movie um peter bogdanovich is buried next to her uh in the cemetery so they are together and you know as complicated as the relationship is and him like marrying her sister and she was funny which was kind of weird it did (laughs) seem that he very much loved her and that you know they could have been very happy together and that she was, she had a lot of talent and a lot of potential and really could have done something. Um, but yeah. a disgusting man who could no longer control her um, decided to end that. And I don't know where the fuck he's buried and I don't care. Who cares? Uh-uh, who cares? Get fucked. Um, can I just say, had he put in the same amount of effort into getting a job as he did getting a gun? Uh-huh. Hey, he could have uh-huh. maybe had more money than she could have ever dreamed of. But no, he was okay. not going to take responsibility for himself and, and support himself. No, no. He wants to steal it from a woman because he's I'm too gonna, damn lazy to work. I'm going to send you guys a picture real quick of this disgusting sleazeball because Re- he is buried back in uh, California or remember, uh, Canada. Remember, he was a um, pimp. Before exactly, you know, he was this is not his first is, trick. It's the same thing someone. as being a landlord, you're not yeah. doing anything. Oh my yeah. god, look at him! That's exactly, yeah, I kind of thought he would look. Let me see for those listening at home. Look he's at got that on finger mink, gun, he's got a mink coat, um, he's got his shirt open with his blinged out Star of David, which that's a choice. His shirt oh. is open, like it is open. He he's looks this, like a pimp. Ugly 70s belt, two tight pants, a disgusting mustache. Yuck. And he's given a finger gun. And he's given finger guns. Ugh. Disgusting. And that's a fur coat over his shoulders. Yes. That was yes. a choice. Whoever put this on his find a grave. I know. And yes. and then you, you click over to Dorothy and she's so lovely. Yes. Mm-hmm. She's and we I will have tons of pictures of Dorothy because she's absolutely stunning. I don't yeah. know that. I want to find her nudes, but I'm sure they're still out there. Oh, I'm sure they are. I mean, and even if you can't find them, AI will generate them for you because AI is trash. Yes. Yeah. Do not Hate give AI. in to AI people. Oh. Okay. Okay. 
What else well, speaking got? of Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, um, shit. I had no idea. And he is related. Yeah, and you it, mentioned my guy. You mentioned my hottie. Oh, okay. Um, so, um, yeah, get ready for a lot here. I was going to say, before I, I, I dig into my guy... I wanted to give a shout out to some of the other hotties that I love because I was like, who's hot and dead? Hmm. Rod <laughs> Serling of Twilight Zone. Oh my God. I love that man. Yes, that man. Mm. Rock Hudson. There is a documentary on Rock Hudson on some streaming channel that is so good. Um, it's worth watching just to look at that man. He's absolutely gorgeous. I love Gregory Peck. I love Robert Mitchum. One of my favorites is Yul Brenner. And mm. I was like, I almost covered him, but it was funny because I was watching the latest episode of Capote versus the Swans, the new feud show. And they said some disparaging things about my dear Yul Brenner. And I was like, how dare you? How dare you? <laughs> it may I be true. It. I don't know, but I, I like him. So anyway, we're not talking about any of those hotties. We are talking about a different hottie. So picture it. It's 1938. TV was not a thing yet. So <laughs> radio was the height of home entertainment. You could listen to music, the news, dr you know, radio dramas, anything you wanted. On October 30th, 1938, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, CBS Radio aired its show, The Mercury Theater on the Air, a live hour-long drama show that presented literary works performed by the R Mercury Theater Repertory Company. If you tuned in at the beginning of the show, you heard that this was a drama, a dramatic performance of H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds, oh. about an alien invasion, which is a total work of fiction. <laughs> but if you tuned in in the middle of the show, like a lot of people do, you may have been a, a bit confused because the Mercury Theater didn't present War of the Worlds as a typical radio drama, start, middle, you know, like a typical just drama. They presented it brilliantly as a series of news bulletins, as if the aliens were really landing. So the more the bulletins go on as the show continues, it gets more and more exciting and more and more scary because at first it's like there's something that landed in New Jersey and then it's, oh my God, there are aliens, they're getting out of the spacecraft. And then and it's, oh, my God, the aliens killed some of our local officials. And, you know, it's just it it really yeah. hikes up as it goes on. And if you tuned in in the middle of it, you would think, oh, God. And, and it's not like you had another source to check. You didn't have your phone. You didn't have a TV. Right. Because, like, that's how I found out about 9-11. I turned on the radio right. and heard something about some planes. And I'm like, well, if it's on the news, then it's bad. And then I turned on the Today right. Show. It was like. Oh, God. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah. So, basically, because the news bulletins were the storytelling device, a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people thought the invasion was real and they panicked. In the days following the broadcast, the media expressed widespread outrage, saying the news bulletin format was deceptive and the FCC should set regulations so this never happened again. Or you could uh, just not be fucking stupid, but hey. <laughs> oh. That too. All of this outrage fell on the shoulders of the head of the Mercury Theater show, a 23-year-old man who duped America into believing aliens had invaded, and he would soon become a legend for his innovative storytelling techniques. This young man was Orson Welles. Now, this was so my Orson favorite story 
or my favorite thing I learned in my eighth grade history class yes. was yes. <laughs> this whole fiasco. Which, um, if you go back and it, first of all, if you want to hear that broadcast, it's all over YouTube. It's an hour long show. Um, at the end of the broadcast, Orson Welles comes on. He's like, hi, I'm Orson Welles. And this show, he's, this is a direct quote, was basically dressing up in a sheet, jumping out of a bush and saying, boo. It was the day before Halloween. Like, okay. put two and two together here, folks. Right. And they say that, like, oh, my God, all of America was tore up. Well, it, they weren't really. It wasn't right. that big of a deal. But it was enough that it made national headlines the next day. Um, I'm going to start by saying this. I think Orson Welles deserves a really cool, innovative storytelling narrative here. Here's mm -hmm. the thing. I've been sick all week. I spent two days in bed. <laughs> and if I sound funny, that's why I sound funny, because I'm still battling this crap. So I did not have time to figure out some cool storytelling technique that would match Orson's genius. So it's, this is just going to be a regular old story about a guy. Sorry, Orson, I'm not doing you justice. But also, well, but that's um, why found footage is such a compelling genre, because it gives you that sense of this is a thing that really happens. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and I mean, I really think it's to tell, to take a novel and say, okay, we're not just going to just tell this, okay, this person did this and then that person did this. You're going to tell it in the form of news bulletins. I think that's genius. Like that, he was so good at telling stories in a unique way. So no, I don't have some compelling, amazing storytelling telling nar narrative here. Also, oh my God, every biography of him is like, six weeks long and I'm like I don't I don't have the time and I don't I'm been so right. fuzzy headed this week so I say all this to say I'm sorry this is not a great story also please understand that every time I say Orson Welles made a movie I need you to know he was doing 20 other things all at once making tv shows radio shows everything I've never like reading his biography is exhausting so anyway, let's start at the beginning. George Orson Welles was born May 6, 1915 in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Ooh. That's right. I share a birthday with Orson Welles. We are both horses. Yeah. We also share a birthday with George Clooney and Rudolph Valentino. Like, how did I get so many hot men on my birthday? I don't know. But thank you, God. Um, his parents were fairly well off. His father invented some kind of popular bicycle lamp. And his mother was a concert pianist. And from everything I read, his mother had a massive influence on him. And she was, like, super progressive and helping the community and all this. And this sort of led to his very liberal, progressive leanings later on. So, good for her. Um, he did have an older brother named Richard, but that's kind of all I know about him. Um, but his parents separated when he was little. They moved from Wisconsin to Chicago, because of course they do. Always. Now... Orson was inspired by his mother. He was a child prodigy. He played piano and violin. He was staging many production of Shakespeare's plays at an early age. He also loved to perform magic tricks. He wrote poems. He drew and he painted. Like, it's almost disgusting. Like, okay, kids, stop being so gifted. Jesus. <laughs> I know. Like, this whole thing. I'm like, can you just slow down, dude? I'm exhausted. Like, we're Tauruses. We're supposed to be lazy. And all he does is work. Like, oh, my God. Um, but his mother died when he was nine years old. Um, his mom died on May 10th, which my dad died on May 10th. That's just weird. Damn. Um, our parent, other parent died on different days though. So, but either way, 
after his mom died, he stopped playing music. Aww. His dad was weirdly an alcoholic, yet financially successful. So his dad hey, took over his care. Some people can do it. I know. I don't know how, but they do. Um, they He took Orson overseas, um, like to all these different countries, and then they come back and stay in Chicago, and then they travel some more. Some people wondered who was taking care of who, because, yeah, Orson's a kid, but his dad's an alcoholic, and it's right. it, it was messy. Yeah. When he was 15, bless his heart, he told his dad he didn't want to see him anymore, hoping this would, like, wake him up and make him stop drinking, and it of course it didn't because that's not how alcoholism works. Um, his dad died alone in a Chicago hotel of heart and kidney failure. So Orson felt guilty about this for years, feeling like he drunk himself to death and it was his fault. And it's not, that's not how alcoholism works. Yeah. Um, anyway, meanwhile, Orson was a student at the exclusive Todd school in Woodstock, Illinois. There was one teacher who like, really saw Orson's potential and he helped him kind of craft his classes. So they were more into what he was interested in. He wasn't just taking crap. He didn't care about. Um, so this guy kind of becomes his mentor and his dad's will said he could name his own guardian. Um, but that his mentor passed so he couldn't go live with him. So he stayed, he became basically a ward of a family friend who was a doctor in Chicago. Um, he was given a scholarship to Harvard. His mentor at Todd wanted him to go to Cornell. Um, and Orson Damn. studied. I know. Um, I mean, absolute genius, man. Um, but Orson studied painting briefly at the Art Institute of Chicago, but eventually he left to travel. And when I say, y'all, I can sit here and name every single thing he was ever in. No, it's exhausting. The man did a ton of theater. So trust me when yeah. I say he spent a lot of the 1930s traveling Europe and America, getting involved in local theaters and making a lot of art. Like, again, constantly being creative. Well, theater was the thing. I mean, movies yeah. were out, but they're not as widespread. And everyone yeah. has a town hall. They can get a group together and do our town, you know. Oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> Um, in 1934, when he was 19, he married a Chicago socialite and actress, Virginia Nicholson. Ooh. Now, this was one of the coolest things I think he ever did. In 1935, he became a part of the Works Project, Works Progress Administrations, the WPA's Federal Theater Project, which was basically, this is during the Great Depression, the government would When fund- I tell you I can do an entire thesis about the WPA. <laughs> I know. Um, so the government basically paid for theater and other live performances to happen to give directors, writers, artists, theater workers work, work, basically. Um, and not only did this save that whole, you know, genre of, Mm -hmm. um, employment, I can't, I'm still sick, so I don't know what I'm saying. Um, (laughs) Um, but it also brought a lot of theater to millions of Americans who may not yeah. have otherwise seen live theater, which I think I is mean, really important. that's how important. the um, WTVA started. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. I I can hear Mr. Osborne, God rest his soul, in my head because the phrase FDR used was priming the pump. Yeah. You've got to prime the pump, you got to get the pump a little bit wet. You got to put a little bit of water in it. So to get, yep. co- you know, commerce moving, you got to put a little bit of money in it to get it started. You do. You do. 
Um, and again, I think like the sound of this next project sounds so rad to me. I would love to see it. One of the things he worked on was a production of Macbeth with an entirely African-American cast. Ooh. He set it in Haiti instead of Scotland. And oh. instead of Scottish witchcraft, they used voodoo. So this became known as Voodoo Macbeth. I know. It sounds so cool. It was a huge success. And 20-year-old Orson Welles was considered a prodigy. Like, everyone was like, yes, oh, my God, this is mind-blowing. genius. It's absolutely genius. In 1938, he and producer John Houseman formed their own repertory company, Mercury Theater. And the original company included a lot of actors that would go on to make a lot of great Hollywood films. These are a lot of your golden age actors like Vincent Price, Geraldine Fitzgerald, Joseph Cotton, and a lot more. And the productions were always very successful, and critics always lauded Orson for his unusual and groundbreaking theater techniques like... There are so many different things I read about the way he would light something, the way he would set something. Like, all of this was so different. No one else was doing this. It was all very cool. I'm not going to get into all that because we ain't got time. <laughs> Meanwhile, Orson was becoming known for his radio work. He worked at several radio stations. Like, he was literally scrambling all over New York to get from station to station. Um, this is where we have the world. The world comes in. He narrated the show and some fellow actors... Um, help play different roles throughout the show. So you don't just hear him the entire time. It's a whole group of actors. Um, and he did have to give a press conference the next day and explain what was himself, happening. basically. Like, and all, it's so funny to watch it because there's this 23-year-old kid. I mean, he is a kid. And all these reporters are like, well, something needs to happen. You know, this is this can't happen again. And Orson the whole time is like, dude, we didn't mean for this to happen. Like, like, nobody told the local yokels to get guns and start misbehaving. I know. But because this story made national headline news, this brought Orson the attention of Hollywood. So Hollywood comes knocking. And he signed a very interesting deal with RKO. This was a deal that gave him total autonomy and final cut on any film he made for two movies. This type of deal was unheard of for someone who's literally never directed a movie. He has directed countless theater plays and countless radio shows, but never a movie. And now I'm and, singing Rocky Horror in my head. <laughs> yeah. And keep in mind, I mean, by the time this is all coming about, he's 25. I mean, Jesus. this is... You're, I, I, I say this with love, being almost 41 years old and having been through my 20s. But yes, one taken out for two. 25-year-olds are kind of stupid. And, uh, oh, God. Uh, yes. And, and so Jesus. to give a 25-year-old total autonomy and, and how Oof. who knows how much money for a movie. Anyway, so the first movie he ever made was Citizen Kane, wildly oh. considered the best movie ever made to this day. I love it it oh, is one God. of my favorite movies of all time and i know there are gonna be kids out there who are like oh yeah right it's the same kids it's who are like so oh god i don't want to listen to the beatles i don't want to listen to this classic thing okay get off your like, i'm fine with you not listening to the beatles like don't i don't care fine. like I don't or whatever but, but citizen kane was good especially when you know like hearst and that it was so good yes um Meanwhile, I'm going to throw this out before we get into the, the depths of Citizen Kane. Um, he and Virginia divorced in 1940. They did have Aww. a daughter together, Christopher Wells Bader, which I like that the daughter's name is Christopher Wells. I love um, 
But anyway, daughter was born in 1938, same year as War of the Worlds, and then we have Citizen Kane coming out. Um, he is making that in 40 and releasing it in 41. He wrote this script with Herman J. Mankiewicz, who is, yes, the grandfather of Dateline's Josh Mankiewicz. and no shit! Mankiewicz. The whole Mankiewicz family, once you dive into the world of classic films, you can't fart without coming across the Mankiewicz, quite frankly. I they love Josh Mankiewicz. He makes I the best He's faces. My, oh, I love him so much. And then to know he comes from this Hollywood royalty, like, they have made so many countless movies. Like, I think it was his maybe great uncle or something that wrote and or directed all about eve with betty davis which is like oh wow such a classic film like i mean i can't even sit here and begin to tell you the classic movies the mankiewicz family made it's incredible like that whole family is so wildly talented anyway citizen kane is about a newspaper magnate charles foster kane built who is based on william randolph hearst who lives this rag to riches story and when he dies a very smart newspaper editor is like, hey, we need to get to the heart of who this man was. His last word was Rosebud. What does that mean? Why, why was that the last thing this incredibly influential man said? So he sends his reporter out to find out what the word meant. And this was like one of the first movies that was nonlinear in its storytelling. So the mm -hmm. time jumps back and forth. That was never done before. So that this was considered a very complex movie to follow. Um and although the audience does learn what Rosebud means, um, the reporter never does, which I love. And the cast includes some of his Mercury Theater cohorts like Joseph Cotton and Agnes Moorhead. Both of them are incredible actors. I love them so much. It is considered the best movie ever made. I do love it. Um, not just because you have two hours of a hottie or some mm -hmm. wills. Mm hmm um, but I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, this movie was just made. It looks and feels like it was just made yesterday. So, like, the party they have so, in the park with like the, the party. tents. Oh my God. There's so many cool scenes. And what I like about it is he used a lot of never before done shots in this movie. And he later said the reason he did these shots was because he was ignorant. He didn't know what you, you could couldn't. and couldn't do with the yeah. camera. So he was just like working with his cinematographer, Greg Tolan, and they would come up with these experimental shots just to see if they would work. And the cool thing is they didn't just work. They helped tell the story. Yeah. And it moved the plot forward. And you didn't have to have all this expedition. You didn't have to have all this extra stuff telling you what's going on. You could just watch this one scene and you got so much information from this one scene. Mm -hmm. A perfect example is early in the movie. Um, a young Charles Foster Kane is outside playing with his sled in the snow. Meanwhile, and you can see this perfectly clear. And normally in, in other shots, in other movies up until now, You'd only been able to focus on one thing. In this mm -hmm. one shot, everything is in focus, which that's mind-blowing in and of itself. So you see in the background a little boy playing with his sled in the snow, but you also see his parents basically signing paperwork to give him away because his mother has just come into this incredible inheritance, and she's like knowing that he needs to go away and yeah. go on and get a great education and all this. And she's being very cold-hearted about it, but 
because she loves him so much. She doesn't, she knows he needs to go on, that he doesn't need to stay in this shack with them. Meanwhile, his dad is there arguing, no, you know, a boy needs to stay with his family and all this. You see all of this happening at once, and it tells you so much about everyone in the scene. And it's just really cool the way it's done. You know, meanwhile, his parents are kind of fussing over what his life should be like. The kid's outside playing in the snow, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, he has no idea his life is being dictated in this way. It's it's just fascinating. Um, but anyway, there's a lot. And then he also, he would shot, he would shoot some characters from down below. So you see them from like the feet up and that made them feel bigger, bigger than life. Yeah. And that kind of gave them an extra sense of importance and, and all this, which is just things like that that I just never thought about. But I'm like, yeah, of course, that's what you get when you see that. Right. Now that's standard practice with I know. You know yeah. Creating movies. It, yeah. Yeah. And and he, and Orson gave a lot of credit to Greg Toland for knowing the rules but breaking them with him. Yeah. So it's really it. cool. Anyway, um Citizen Kane, when it first came out, received rave reviews, but it was not a commercial success. Uh Charles Foster Kane is a complex and not always likable character. Mm -hmm. And RKO found this difficult to market. And then you still have R William Randolph Hearst around. So his newspapers are like, uh-uh. Like, oh, fuck you. So they did everything they could to try to hinder the movie's success. It did receive nine Oscar nominations, including Best Actor, Best Director, and Original Screenplay for Orson, but it only won Best Screenplay. Now, I don't want to say that Orson Welles was a one-hit wonder because he was not, but none of his other films reached the same level of success or accolades as Citizen Kane. But they did come close. There's plenty of other movies and things he made that are considered masterpieces, but like Citizen Kane is like the mm -hmm. creme de la creme. Um, and although he... His original contract said he'd have full autonomy on his films, RKO often edited them mercilessly. Um, a lot of times he was overseas working on other projects when he would send the movie back to the editors at RKO. So he wouldn't, he was not there to like argue for his vision. So they just cut him to pieces. Mm -hmm. um, or in one case of the Magnificent Ambersons, which he made next, they tacked on a happy ending and he's like, that's not what I wanted. Um, and also during some of this, he was a goodwill ambassador for overseas during World War II. So, He's working for the government. Like, he, he can't be there anyway. Right. Long story short, RKO and Orson get into it, and they go their separate ways. Meanwhile, he married his, um, he started a movie called Journey Into Fear, and he married his co-star Dolores Del Rio in 1941, but they divorced in 43 because he was cheating, which, shocker, he's a man, I'm sorry, but. Especially in that, that business, yeah. Yeah, and you have beautiful co-stars and actresses and stuff. And I think that was why he broke up with his first wife, because he was already had his eyeballs on Dolores. So. Lord. I know, Lord. It, he, he's just too hot. He can't be perfect. Um, he did spend World War II making radio shows, entertaining the troops with a touring magic show, which co-starred the hottie McCotterson herself, Rita Hayworth, who he oh, would go yeah. on to marry in 1943. He gave speeches on behalf of the war effort. Um, just a lot of stuff. And what I think was cool is I read one line in one bio that said, some of the other Goodwill ambassadors that were entertaining the troops were like Walt Disney, John Ford, Bing Crosby. And some people think that Orson and some of these folks 
were sent not overseas not only to entertain the troops but also to gather intelligence for the U.S. government. Which it wouldn't here surprise for me. It. Yeah, here for it. Um. So anyway, yes, he does marry Rita Hayworth. They have a daughter together, Rebecca Wells Manning, in 1944. And unfortunately, Rebecca passed away in 2004 at the age of 59. Um, baby, I know. Meanwhile, Orson stars in a couple of movies, but he finally got back in the director's chair with 1946's The Stranger with Edward Edward G. Robinson, who is so I love Edward G. Rob. You want to talk about the like one of the best gangster actors ever? Like he walked so Ray Liotta could run. Like, <laughs> oh my god, I love Edward G. Robinson. And it's if you think you don't know him, if you looked him up, you'd be like, I know that guy. Incredible that guy, actor. Yeah. Um. I watched this movie just the other day. I thought it was great. Um, Orson didn't love it because they made him stick to a very strict schedule. And um, to make the studio happy, he couldn't, he just didn't have the chance, the time to make it very experimental. So it was a pretty, it's his most conventional film and it's his only commercially successful film. You gotta Up let next. the creative weirdo be the creative I know. weirdo. No one let him be the creative weirdo. And I'm like, y'all. Anyway, next up, he made uh, The Noir, The Lady from Shanghai, which starred Rita Hayworth, who he was separated from by this point. Ooh. But Popcorn. it is a it's a great movie. I highly recommend it. Um, it was a commercial failure, but now it's considered a masterpiece. The climatic shootout in a hall of mirrors is so rigging cool like you've got to see it just for the shootout in the hall of mirrors um in 1947 he made Macbeth. he prepared for this low budget shoot by directing a stage production in salt lake city utah with most of the cast that's okay. so smart um and then he he said the movie was a violently sketched charcoal drawing of a great play um which i just i don't know i think that's really cool that first to get ready for a low-budget movie, you just stage it as a stage play. And that's how yeah. everyone's ready to go in and do their thing. I just think it's so cool. I still um, want to see the voodoo Macbeth. I need I it. I know. God, I wish they filmed that. Um, but yeah, so the editors got their hands on that. They cut it down and overdubbed the actor's original Scottish accents. Yeah. And so it went not what he wanted it to be. He spent uh, the last years of the the 40s acting in a lot of movies, including The Third Man, which is a huge movie of his. Um, He ended up spending the next 25 years in Europe. In Europe, he filmed Othello. And this is just so crazy, y'all. This ended up kind of becoming just how he worked. Because he was really self financing a lot of his stuff, he would have to, like, go take an acting job to finance the movies he directed. So... He began filming Othello in 48, but it wasn't released until 52. He had to film it in these little fits and starts because he would run out of money, have to go act in a movie, come back. And the actors weren't always available when he did have money. So some scenes of like one conversation would be filmed like years apart. Oh, wow. I love and it. they said the way he edited it, it was genius. They said it just, and it, it's considered another one of his big achievements. Um, meanwhile, he and Rita Hayworth divorced in 1947. Uh, throughout the 50s, he acted in a bunch of plays and made short movies and shows for TV. One of them, for the BBC that he made, attacked a, the abuse of police powers around the world. This sounds like it should be made today. Like, when I read the plot of it, it's about, like, a black guy, a black kid getting beat up by the cops. 
wow. And he's making this crap in 1955. Ooh. Like, you know, like he was on it. When I say this man was so beautifully liberal and, and progressive, I love him. Anyway, um, if you are a fan of I Love Lucy, you have probably seen his um, episode, which he guest starred in in 1955. Also in 1955, he married actress... Paola Mori, a Italian aristocrat who starred in a movie with him. They never officially divorced, but they had a daughter together, Beatrice, in 1955. Um, in 1958, he returned to the movies with A Touch of Evil, starring himself, Janet Lee, and Charlton Heston. Um, they He sent it to Universal. They cut down a lot of his footage and he went back and said no here are the changes i want they ignored him this was his last big studio picture after this he really self-financed everything um he stayed super busy throughout the 60s and 70s he did a lot of television and film work um if you've ever heard him speak oh my god the man has the most incredible voice there's a wonderful youtube um video about the way he speaks someone has like broken it down and it's so cool um so he narrated a lot of things um and he was also a frequent guest on talk shows like johnny carson johnny carson and dick cavett um i've watched several of his dick cavett interviews um and they're great and a lady named oja kodar became his partner in 1966 he never officially divorced Paula, but Ojo was his lady for the rest of his life. Anyway, from 1970 to 1976, he worked on one movie, The Other Side of the Wind, which starred John Huston and, yes, Peter Bogdanovich and yeah. all of that. He ran out of money before he could finish the movie, and it was tied up in legal battles for many years, but it was finally released in 2018 using his edited footage in notes. And there's a documentary about the making of the movie, which is cool, too. Um, there are a lot of, because when I say this man constantly worked, he constantly worked. Um, there's so many scraps and pieces of movies and plays and all this, and a lot of things have been found and put together and released in the decade since his passing. I thought it was really interesting. One of his TV documentaries was lost in a lost and found locker at a Paris hotel for decades until it was discovered in 1986. Like you just have a Orson Welles movie hanging out in your lost and found at a hotel. Like that's wild to me. His last completed work was as a director was called filming Othello. It was for a West German TV um, TV station. It was about making of his movie Othello. His last acting roles were voice work, and he did voice work for Enchanted Journey and the Transformers, the movie. Oh, <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah, he did. Yep. Orson Welles died on October 10th, 1985, of a heart attack. He was 70. A it's brief... so crazy that he made it all the way into the 80s. Like, it's yeah. I know. so wild. Well, that he was only 70, too. It's only just, 70. Yeah. 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 And I was going to, I guess, save this for later, but I'll say it now. He, he became pretty overweight later in his life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so that became, like, a big thing, which he was already, like, a super tall man. He was, like, well over six yeah, foot tall. Yeah, he's a big and dude. He was a big dude. Um, but that does not make him any less hot, people. If you think people are less hot because they gain weight... I need you to go take a long walk off 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 a short. Look, here. even okay. as an old potty man, Marlon Brando could get it. 
I think Orson Welles could get it. I would. I'm sorry. I'd climb that mountain. I mean, <laughs> I I would straight. I think like, he I'm barking up that tree, babe. Well, and here's the thing, too. I read this thing the other day of some baby, complete baby online was like, oh, my God, when I'm 70, am I going to find 70 year old men hot? Yes. And I'm babe. like, I hope you do. Like, it's funny because now as I've gotten older, I think younger Orson Welles, like Citizen Kane age is almost not hot to me. I like more because of you're the- like, this is a baby a baby and i'm like the more i get into like older orson wells the more i'm like hey old or older orson <laughs> wells supposed to beard. find your peers attractive that's yes. how this works yes and and so he gained weight happens to all of us okay i don't care right anyway his family had a private memorial service it was attended by paula and his three daughters who had never met before Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is interesting. But I'm like, you also Awkward. have very different mothers and probably lived yeah. in different parts of the country. So makes sense. Yeah. Only a few close friends were invited to that. But a public memorial took place a few weeks later at the Directors Guild of America Theater. And this public memorial was hosted by Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> Damn. It all comes full circle. It all comes full circle. Everest involved in some way. <laughs> No, surprisingly not. I I was, I mean, other than I would climb that mountain. <laughs> we did manage to get Chicago in there, our yeah. obligatory Chicago reference. We did. His, probably his best friend in the world was a, a actor, Joseph Cotton, who again, I love. He's in so many movies. He's such a good actor. He actually did not attend this public memorial. He said he knew Orson didn't want a funeral. But he yeah. did send a message to the memorial, ending with the last two lines of a Shakespeare sonnet that Wells had sent him on his most recent birthday. And the end of those sonnets were, um, but if the while I think of thee, dear friend, all losses are restored and sorrows end. Oh, <sighs> which makes me want to cry. Orson was cremated and in 1987, his cremains were buried in, I hope I'm saying this right, Rhonda, Spain. R-O-N-D-A, Ronda, Ronda, I don't know. It is in an old well. They put his ashes in an old well. They covered it with flowers. It's on the estate of his longtime friend and bullfighter, Antonio Ordonez. I hope I'm saying that right. That's actually kind of cool. It's so cool. He (laughs) loved Spain. He lived there for many, many years. So it makes sense him and Hemingway. Yeah, it makes sense to me that that's where he is and that it's not open to the public, you know, which I'm like, that's that's cool. That's fair. Um, Yeah. He won countless awards throughout his life and even a lot more posthumously. I'm not going to sit here and list all of them. Um, But a couple of things that I read. um, Bogdanovich, who was directed by Orson Welles in The Other Side of the Wind, wrote that Quote, being directed by Wells was like breathing pure oxygen all day long. He was Damn. so totally in control that he never had to prove a point out of any kind. I never saw him get angry or impatient or raise his voice in any way but hilarity. Um, so, yeah, he, he has a great quote about that. Um, but I did want to end. There's so many good Orson Welles quotes. He's so witty and funny. Um, one of my favorite quotes of his is he says he doesn't pray because he doesn't want to bore God. But in this quote, I thought this wraps up things beautifully, and and we are a show kind of about death. Uh, Orson said, we're born alone, we live alone, we die alone. Only through our love and friendship can we create the illusion for the moment that we're not alone. Oh. 
And that is my Hottie McCotterson Orson Welles. I love it. Oh, I could just listen to that man speak all day. You know, one thing I've got to find, he has a lot of records that were released that were like him reciting Shakespeare and crap. Right. I need those. I need to and go well, And speaking of Shakespeare, if you go to the Wikipedia page for Voodoo Macbeth, they have a four-minute clip of the oh. final four minutes of the production in 1937. Heck yeah, okay. I'm so when we're done, that. I'm going to watch that. And it has great, it has pictures of the cast. It has pictures, uh, stills from the performance. So there's a lot. They have the opening night, you know, paparazzi cool. pics. So definitely I, check it out because it looks stunning. You know, I, this was such a challenging story because for one, it's so long. Like yeah. I said, he's in so much stuff. How do you pick out the best movies, the best theater roles, whatever? Um, so I didn't have a lot of time to research. Now, we we are a bi-weekly podcast, right? So theoretically, yes. we have plenty of time to prepare these scripts. But last week, did I work on it? No, I, I watched Orson Welles movies. <laughs> um, or I watched Basically. his interviews on Dick Cavett. I did not do any actual re- I just was watching documentaries and all this. This week, when I get sick as a dog, then I'm like, I need to read my script. And I literally, y'all, I've been so fuzzy-headed all week. Um. I hope that made some kind of sense. Um, no, I, I forgot to awesome. mention there is a cool War of the Worlds monument in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, because that's where supposedly the aliens landed. Yeah. Um, and it's really cool. And then there is a monument in Orson's honor in Spain that is open to the public. Um, but either way. Oh, and awesome. that was another quote. That's what I meant to say. On this plaque... And I think this either is a quote from Orson or this is something he said in a movie. I'm not real sure, but it says a man is not from where he was born, but where he chooses to die. Oh, and I thought that was a really cool quote. And he, he loved Spain. He wanted to be kind of a, an honorary right. Spaniard. So that's why he's there. I just, I think that's sweet. Anyway, hotties. That's our hotties episode. I hope you find our people it. hot. I hope if you are celebrating, what's this thing called? Valentine's Day. Yes. Um, or the more important holiday, which is February fifteenth. No, day oh after. yeah, half price candy. That's, <laughs> that's true. Oh, did favorite. you also see the thing that that's also the thirteenth and the fifteenth are like cheaters Valentines because that's when they take their mistresses. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, um, and then Mardi Gras is this Tuesday. So, well, good for Mardi Gras. Um, Get fat, um, bone, do what you gotta do. I that. Oh, that inspires me to make some gumbo this week. Um, do it and go buy half price chocolate on the fifteenth because man, Mariano's chocolate. has boil in the bag crawfish, and I'm seriously considering mm-hmm. doing it. Man, you say boil in the bag. My first thought was peanuts. <laughs> okay, I love those too. I love boiled peanuts. Oh, I don't have to go and, make some. Uh, and for those at home wondering, um, Papa Nanner, yes. loved our episode. <laughs> Um, he was like, at first he was like, he got like 45 minutes into it. He's like, oh, I see what they did. (laughs) So, so he did update us on some other things that make it clear to me that the Navy was created and is still run by 13 year old boys. Um, there is a boat called a coxswain. (laughs) So you could be a coxswain's mate. Um, and they also have a gas nozzle that is referred to as a donkey dick. And there's a reason for that Jeez. because I looked at it. I was like, yeah, no, that is an equine penis of some form. <laughs> um, 
So well, shout out it, to Papa Nanner who absolutely yes. loved the episode and who always listens to us. And there was only one dick mentioned in this one. Thank you very I much. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it was funny because, like I told the girls, I just started playing uh, Monopoly Go, which, oh, God, <laughs> yes. it has taken over my life. I'm officially, because there's no ads and you just can play constantly. Yes. It, yes. You don't have to wait to earn more whatevers. You can just keep playing. And one of the things I got the other day was something about becoming a, how do you say it? Boat, boat swan? Boatswain. Yeah. Something about, and I was like, and I sent a screenshot to the girls. I'm like, this word is following me <laughs> everywhere. Yep. Anyway, um, I think next week we're going to discuss Black Excellence for Black History Absolutely. Month. Yes. Um, I have been, so man, tossing so many ideas around. There's so many cool people to talk about. Yeah, I have like a ton. I haven't like picked one yet. And knowing me, yeah. it's going to be, I kind of knew right away I was going to do Dorothy Stratton for this one. Just yeah. because I always found her case so absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, and Hollywood Crime Scene has an episode on her. Mm, it's cool. really good. Um, and yeah, she was just, she was so gorgeous. Just a beauty. Yeah. And um, I hope your team wins at the Super Bowl, whatever team that the is. The Superb Owl. Um, yes. As for me, my house, we root for Taylor's boyfriend. Um, <laughs> uh, which yeah, in my I'm defense, rooting. I am from Kansas City. So I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for, for Usher. For a very long time. Um. <laughs> Well, see, I my love family, Usher. we are a 49ers family, so. But you're from Kansas City. I'm not from Kansas City. Well, your daddy is. No, he's not. He's from St. Louis. <laughs> my oh, so you, got, <laughs> you got family in Kansas City. I do have family in Kansas City, but my a- Adam, you know, he's been a Niners fan since the 90s. And so well, I'm a Niners fan. Okay, and, and, I no, was no, on. Hold on, hold on. Jimmy Garoppolo okay. is the reason I'm a Niners. Fan. I'm just, you know what? I can't he's fault not, you for that because even, damn, he's not even the quarterback damn. anymore. But Jimmy G can get it, man. Damn. <laughs> um, and, and, that's and like, I'm, I'm that, rooting what for is Usher. that little he's actual infant Joe Burrow? Mm-hmm. I'm like, baby, I could be your mother, but whoo, I would love to. <laughs> And they, even though he went to LSU, which I'm like, oh, why'd you do like, that? Everybody makes bad decisions when they're young. I know. I know. They, <laughs> yeah, we that's do true. our best. We do our best. Yeah. Um, let's see, I was going to say something. I don't know. I was going to say something else and it left me. Well, I'm going to go take some DayQuil. Um, yes. Girl, well, go take some DayQuil. I'm yes. going to get into take a trouble. Nap. Oh, cool, Jack. This is a great time for you to take a shit right next to me. Yeah, Love I mean, come on. it's it's a perfect way to end the episode. So God yeah, if you, if you feel like reaching out, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, oh, yeah. and Twitter. <laughs> yes, at Cemetery Row Pod, or you can send us an email to cemeteryrowpod at gmail dot com. And our yeah. music is Revenge Body, so go check mm-hmm. his shit out. And like, yes. he's awesome, and he did this for us, yeah. and we love him to pieces. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And um, and yeah, sorry, I forgot to to. Cue you up there, Lou. That's like okay. I'm, That's I'm okay. so foggy headed. I, I know, girl, go lay I, down. I gave, I gave a ghost tour last night. I have no idea how I did it. I don't know that I was even. I know I was not coherent because I started one story and was like, I was talking about this woman named Elizabeth, and I was like, and her name was Dorothy, and I'm like, <laughs> where did that come from? Where Your did, Yelp where reviews did, are going to be the, like, we think this bitch was drunk. The, Probably the ghosts, the ghosts are fucking with you, Sheena. Something. I was like, the only thing, I, and I told him, I said, I think the only thing I can come up with is I go to sleep to the Golden Girls every night. So it's yes. just, oh, I don't know. Dorothy's man. everywhere. 
Oh, I'm yeah. I'm well, we rest. love y'all. So yeah, thank you. We do. Thanks for three years of us. Yeah. Yes. God love us. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.